Now, there's a lot of people that are, I don't know, afraid, maybe you might say, of Bible prophecy. In fact, a lot of pastors hesitate to even teach on it. And you get different reactions from people concerning end times studies and that sort of thing. And certainly people do abuse that and sensationalize it. But if you think about it, of all of the questions that Jesus was asked, this one in the Olivet Discourse is the longest exposition that he gives. There's two whole chapters. It's not the longest sermon that we have, but it certainly is the longest answer to questions that are given. So Jesus didn't hesitate to speak on issues that deal with the future. And that should clue us in that this is not only a valid reason to study, but just, you know, it's part of Scripture. It's part of what God has given to us. And there's a lot of good reasons to do it because it gives us a perspective on on the future, but it also helps us to understand the times in which we're living in. And that's kind of the emphasis that we want to look at, is how do these passages impact us in terms of how should we view things in the culture in which we live in? And I've given you a lot of background on that. I won't review that. So we're looking at the Olivet Discourse. And we're still in that period of time called Tribulation. And we're going to focus on a particular event. We talked about this last time. This is two weeks ago. And this seems to be a focal point and somewhat of a turning point in a a seven-year period of time that is very specific and prophesied in a lot of detail in a lot of passages. In fact, most of the book of Revelation deals with this seven-year period of time, from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 18, you might even say, say chapter including 19, 19 records the event that brings that seven-year period to a conclusion. So several chapters in the book of Revelation give us a lot of detail, and there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament as well. So for some of those reasons, and because some of you were interested in this area, we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse. We saw verses 4 through 14 dealing with the beginning of birth pangs. This period of time, as we'll see, we won't get to the verse, but pretty close to what we'll get to, this is the most severe time of all of world history. There's never been a time like it. And it also says there will never be a time in the future like it. And there's a lot of uh, issues that go on there. And God has a particular purpose for bringing what's going to happen in those seven years, for bringing them about. The main reason deals with the nation of Israel. This is the time when he will bring Israel back to himself in a spiritual real salvation experience that the nation of Israel has never experienced in the past. It'll be the time when he fulfills the new covenant amongst the nation of Israel. That's the main purpose for this. We've seen already some of that. But it's a time of severe persecution, a time of severe testing. In fact, a time of natural disaster, Lots of turmoil during that period of time. Jesus calls that the beginning, or at least the beginning part, the beginning of birth pangs. 
We're going to look at uh, 15 through 28. Jesus describes probably the second half of this seven-year period, the second three and a half years. He calls it the Great Tribulation. In other words, the Tribulation will be great. And when we get to that point, we'll amplify that idea as well. But we're looking at the parts from 15 to 28. The first part I describe as the destructiveness of this period of time, 15 through 22. And there's some detail there. We won't get through all of those today. The parts of 15 to 22, verse 15, that we focused on last time, we didn't even quite get done with it because it's kind of cryptic. It's a little difficult to understand. You have to have some Old Testament background. You have to understand the the meaning of the terms. So we went over all of that last time. But the essence of what's going on in verse 15 is some pivotal event in the middle of this period of time that's described in the book of Daniel. It's described in, in other parts of the Old Testament. Described by the book of Revelation. It's described by the Apostle Paul. This particular event deals with a desecration of a new temple that will exist in Israel at this period of time. So we developed all of that last time, and I'll summarize a little bit of that. The sentence that kicks all that off, beginning in verse 15, runs through verse 16. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything that he's talked about already, in light of the beginning of these birth pangs, in light of this first three and a half year period of time, there's going to be this event that he's going to describe in this subordinate clause of verse 15. When you see certain things, and particularly this particular incident, this abomination of desolation, then he expands that, Verse 16, it's not till you get to verse 16 that you have the subject of the sentence. Then those, and the subject of the sentence, is particular people that are living at that particular time. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So that's the heart of the sentence, although he precedes it with a lot of data, a lot of information here, to describe this particular event. When this takes place, Get out of, what, Dodge? <laughs> Get out of town. And don't waste any time is the thrust of what we'll look at. And we'll look at those verses. So, therefore, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So, last time we talked about what is this abomination of desolation? What is all that all about? And it's something very, very detestable, just from the word study. Something that is very offensive and particularly the Jewish people. It only occurs six times, and we looked at uh, each of those passages. Well, we didn't look at Mark's, but it's parallel with the Matthew passage. It's almost identical. And it comes with this other word, desolation. In other words, something takes place that makes the temple offensive to go into, in other words, or even to be around. And it's going to make the temple unclean in such a way that the Jews are going to have to avoid it. Because if they go there, they will become unclean as well. So if you can imagine the most holy place of all of Judaism now being offensive to Jews because of what takes place there. This event, and we'll look at some of the other detail in in a moment, but that event that takes place 
is precisely dated for us in Daniel chapter 9, in the middle of that seven-year period. This event is going to take place. And we looked at some of the passages. So, what the phrase means is something takes place that causes the temple to be desecrated in such a way that Jews cannot approach that whole area. And remember when you speak of the temple, it's not just the building itself, it's not just the Holy of Holies, although this event will take place probably in the Holy of Holies. The holy place is what Matthew says. But that whole complex will become desolate in that Jews will not desire to be in that area. So that's what the phrase means. Very significant event. So this abomination of desolation is spoken of by Daniel, which was spoken of through Daniel. Takes us back to Daniel 9, but there's some other references as well. And we looked at the other references. Daniel 9 not only explains a little bit what's going on there, but gives us the time frame. Standing in the holy place. That's probably the holy of holies. And from those other passages that we looked at, I don't remember if we looked at them in detail, but we can come back to them. But basically, 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, tells us that this personage, an individual by the name of, or described as Antichrist, will proclaim himself to be God himself in the temple. A very blasphemous thing to do that, and particularly in the Holy of Holies. And he will, in fact, back that up from other passages, Revelation 13, with miraculous works and things that will desecrate that temple. So, it says, let the reader understand, this is significant, this is major, this is not a minor event, described in several places. Then, those who are in Judea must flee. Sure. That's correct. So it's going to be built and then be desecrated. Very good point. Yes, there is no temple. In fact, there has not been a temple in Jerusalem since 70 A.D. Totally destroyed. Temple Mount, the complex, is there. But when Jesus says not one stone would be left, he's referring to the, the building where the Holy of Holies would be. But... There's several other passages, but Matthew implies, remember we said it assumes several things? One of the things that it assumes is that there will be a temple during this period of time. And Daniel makes that clear in other passages. So there'll be a temple in Jerusalem on the exact spot of the temple of 70 AD, on the exact spot of the temple of Solomon that also was destroyed in 586 B.C. There's going to be a new temple. And I mentioned last time that I've heard reports that Jewish people, somewhat quiet, quietly, but have all that they need to build and establish a temple in a relatively short period of time, in a matter of days, to be able to reestablish their worship. And they have a priesthood, I have heard as well, with all of the garments that they require and all of the things associated with worship to be able to resume the worship. The worship was discontinued in 70 AD. So, yes, there will be a new temple. And by the way, there will be a tribulation temple, and it's not clear, but it's probably not the same one that is in the millennial kingdom. 
There will be a millennial kingdom. In fact, Ezekiel gives you, what, six chapters of detailed description of that millennial temple. So this tribulation temple may be probably smaller and somewhat maybe even temporary until this ultimate millennial temple is built. So Ezekiel predicts a millennial temple, and it may be different from the tribulation temple. Okay, so just to kind of wrap up verse 16, what I wanted to do is describe this personage that will in fact desecrate the temple. And the reason I want to describe him is I think we can draw an application from this description because John says in 1 John that the spirit of Antichrist already exists. And through church history, there have been people that have displayed displayed these characteristics, maybe not every single one of them, but the essence of what Antichrist is all about. And perhaps there are people today that have this spirit of Antichrist. In other words, this mindset, this motivation, this satanic view that is totally in opposition to what God has. And we need to be careful because we're living in a culture where I think a lot of these characteristics are applicable to us as well. Now, that doesn't mean that Antichrist is here per se. Now, he may be alive, but he won't be identified until that seven-year period of time. So we don't want to sensationalize them, these characteristics, and attach them to people in church age because the Antichrist will not be revealed, I don't believe, at least, until this seven-year period begins. I was reading someplace, if you recall, it's in Matthew, where it's after Jesus' temptation, since the, uh, the devil left him for a more opportune time, so that word was put, and somebody has been suggesting that there has always been, just like types of Christ, there's always a type who is always seeking opportunity to throughout history, that he is constantly seeking Yes. Yeah, and I gave you some examples in the first century, and there's been people that have risen throughout church age. They are not the ones described in Matthew chapter 24, nor the ones specifically during that seven-year period in the book of Revelation and other passages as well. But the spirit of Antichrist, as you are mentioning, has always been there, and particularly in our age as well. Number one, in fact, let's look up these passages. I don't have them written down, but some of them are in the book of Daniel. Somebody look up chapter 7, and I'll have you read. There's a few there. David, go ahead. Daniel 7, and somebody else, Daniel 8. And I want you to be able to attach scriptures to each one of these. Someone got chapter 8. Okay, Jim. And I want someone to read Second Thessalonians 2. This is that passage that I was referring to. Someone got that one? Okay. And Revelation chapter 13. Who wants to do that one? Bob. Okay, Daniel chapter 7. Why don't you read uh, verse 20, first of all. And I, I kind of summarize it here. He's bigger than life. Another word you could use is charismatic. In other words, very attractive. To the masses, particularly. Go ahead and read that one. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and the others which came up before them, 
three fell, even that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things. Spoke very great things. In other words, very eloquent. Whose look was more stout than his fellows. Okay, in other words, very attractive, bigger than life, charismatic, influential, powerful speaker. That's one of the characteristics of uh, the spirit of Antichrist and will be epitomized in that individual during the seven years. So are we going through the character? Yeah, this is on your outline sheet. Eleven of them. Right. Yeah. This is number one on your outline sheet there. Very intelligent, bright. In fact, some will consider him genius. You want to also, Dave, read verse 8, same uh, chapter. Verse 8. Verse 8, 7, 8, Daniel 7, 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth speaking great things. Okay, eyes. Now, you could use that same verse for the the first one that we have here. But the eyes, kind of a picture, symbolic somewhat, because this is somewhat symbolic in that context, of intelligence, viewed almost omnisciently. And there's other passages that support this idea of uh, intelligence. Daniel 8, who's got it? Daniel 8, read uh, verse 23. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, people arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Insolent or arrogant, skilled in intrigue. That same passage, he's arrogant, articulate. Read uh, verse 24 as well. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and form his will. He will destroy a mighty man and the holy. Okay, a master politician, and he will also exert influence by force. So he will amass worldwide power through both means, through the, just the power of his personality and through the power of, of force as well. But it's not his power. Which is the That's what it says. So what is the source of his power implied there. <laughs> Satanic power. Right. Are these all under number one? Your other these? No, these are, I should have numbered these. These are one, two, three, four, five. So where are we at on five? Can you go verses out? Last one was that for arrogant, articulate, or for melody? Probably Daniel eight twenty-three, And you could include 24 for the last three there. And read 25. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He, he will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Okay, now 24, you can also include successful, and then 25, deceitful. Deceitful. Did you catch that first phrase there again? How did it phrase it there? Yeah, through his shrewdness. Through his shrewdness. Cause deceit to succeed. Yes, very successful, very deceitful. And then we have Second Thessalonians 2. Who's got it? Read 3, verse 3. 
But let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of lawlessness. There's a characteristic there. The son of destruction. The son of destruction. Also read verse 8, because it basically reiterates. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to the appearance of his coming. Okay, so the spirit of Antichrist will persist until Jesus Christ deals with the Antichrist. And that's described in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 13, you got that one, Bob? Read verse 2. Verse 2. 13.2. Describes... His political ideology is that of one that's a statist. Another word for that is totalitarian. Or, I don't know that I gave a real good description. Somebody asked about this when we were looking earlier. But the attitude of a statist is one who sees government as all-powerful. In other words, government is the answer to all things. Government is the one that you look to. In other words, government is the savior. That's a statist attitude. That's a totalitarian attitude. Bigger government. The bigger the government, the better. You want to read it? And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great. Okay. So he has totalitarian authority. Totalitarian authority. And he will rule the world for a short period of time during that seven-year period of time. It also gives us the source of his power. Now, it uses symbols there, and if you develop the symbols, he's described as a beast. Now, that reminds us of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees a vision of several beasts. The Antichrist, during the seven-year will almost epitomize all of those beasts of history. And that's from God's perspective. He's a beast. And it tells us the dragon is clearly identified in chapter 12. Satan himself. That's the source of his power. But he will have an ideology that we could describe as statist or totalitarian. Also read in that passage, Revelation 13... Well, 13.2, read 13.3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed, followed after it. Okay, what does that tell you? By the way, another one that I added here for verse 3, demonic, or you could even include satanic. The next one there, what do you think is the next one there? What occurs... In the experience of this this personage, Revelation 13. Yeah. An apparent resurrection or a seeming resurrection, it's not real clear in the text, but it's at least miraculous and so convincing, so evident that the whole world will say, well, he must be Messiah. He must be the deliverer. He must be the promised one. And many will accept him as that false messianic figure. That's why he's called Antichrist. Because he's demonic. In fact, there is a demonic trinity that will be at work during that seven year period of time. 
Dave, and then I'll describe. Uh, verse 25, we're talking about the, how he's uh, a needed, unmeetable by human hands. Mm-hmm. And then another uh, part of Revelation where it speaks about <clears throat> who is like the beast and who can make war with him. I would add unmeetable to that list. Yes. Yeah, you could add that. There's space there for it. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, obviously, he's overcome by Jesus alone, not by anything we can do. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, he's going to be unstoppable. Very good point. Yeah, we could put that one there. That'd be number 12, right? Great. In fact, you could come up with other descriptive terms as well, besides that one. But we only have space for one more. (laughs) Now, this is the personage during that seven-year period of time that'll be the focal point. He will be a totalitarian ruler that'll take control Basically, the world system. And there will be a one world system. Revelation 13 describes that. We didn't look at all the verses. But he will control all, obviously, the political. He will control the economic. If you look at the end of chapter 13, the whole economic system will be under his his control. And he will also be the head spiritually. There will be a one world religion. And he will claim to be God himself. He will set himself in the temple. That is the abomination that makes desolate. That claim that Second Thessalonians 2 makes clear. He's a lawless one. In other words, constitution won't matter to him. He will make his own laws. So that's the statist, demonic, miraculous antichrist. Now, there will be a satanic trinity during that seven-year period of time. One member is described as the dragon. Who's that? That's Satan. He would correspond with God the Father. The other one is the first beast, Revelation chapter 13, first beast. He would correspond to what? He would be the manifestation or the human incarnation of the dragon. We call him Antichrist. And that leaves, which would be the counterfeit Messiah, the counterfeit Christ, that leaves the third person of the Trinity corresponding to the Holy Spirit. But there'll be a demonic Holy Spirit that'll be evident as well that's described in the second half of Revelation 13. He's called the false prophet. And what he does is he glorifies the first beast. He's the second beast that glorifies the first beast. It will be a satanic trinity in operation during that seven-year period of time. So that's Antichrist. And verse 15 points to that pivotal event that that person will accomplish during that seven-year period of time. Now, beginning in verse 16, when you see that happening, what does the text tell us? Then those who are in Judea must flee, get out of town. This is going to be the most intense period of time of persecution for God's people. And it will focus on Jewish people. That's an emphasis of chapter 12. In fact, we'll go back and look at that passage in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. So you must flee. Get out of town. Now, there's no exhortation for the church to flee. In other words... What we are to do, and there have been some groups that have gone to mountaintops when they thought that Messiah was soon. In fact, I think some elements of Jehovah's Witnesses did that uh, historically in 
I don't remember, 1844 or somewhere. But other groups, so-called Christian groups, have thought that they were close, and they, they left. They sold possessions, sold their homes, and basically tried to escape what they thought was a coming tribulation. The church is never exhorted to do that. In fact, we're going to look at an application later that tells us what we should be doing. We should be actively serving until the Lord returns. And we'll see that later on after we get into some other passages dealing with the second coming. So, but during that seven-year period, when this event happens, in other words, it'll be evident, and those that are believers will recognize what it is, better get out of town because the persecution is going to become as severe as it can be. In fact, I've mentioned that this period of time, this seven-year period, will be a period where there will be the greatest revival that has ever seen, been seen on the face of the earth. It will also be the, the greatest holocaust that has ever occurred. Jewish people will go through another holocaust. And it will include not just Jewish people, but it will include Gentile believers as well. It will be focused on Jewish people. In chapter 20, the feast, the dragon feast. Yes, there's your, there's your uh, satanic trinity. When it says flee, if you do a word study, it generally refers to fleeing from physical danger. Fleeing from physical danger. This is the same word that is used when Joseph and Mary were fleeing the wrath of Herod. And remember, the angel encouraged them to flee. In other words, get out of town. Because Herod was intent on killing all of the babies. Because he wanted to rid himself of this so-called king of the Jews. The Magi told him where he could find him, and Herod uh, attempted to kill them. <laughs> Feugo. 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 Feta is like an F. Get it? It's also used uh, in Matthew 2, well, that's Matthew 2.13 is Joseph and Mary. But in Acts seven twenty nine, it speaks of Moses. Remember, Moses had to flee Egypt. Same word in Acts chapter seven, where Stephen describes Moses fleeing the Pharaoh. So it's fleeing situations of danger, and it's also used of fleeing spiritual hazards. In other words, things that can do you damage. In the New Testament. For example, flee immorality is one of the verses, 1 Corinthians 6. Flee idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10. Flee materialism, 1 Timothy 6, 11. And there's some other uses as well. In this context, it's referring to the severest of persecution of Jewish people. The greatest holocaust poured out upon them. And it's the persecution of Antichrist. And it's to preserve a remnant. It's going to be so severe that God calls them to leave. Now, several Jewish people fled preceding 70 AD, and they fled to nearby mountains. In fact, there's a site in northern, northeastern Israel where many of them resided, a town called Pella. David? All three of those situations you talked about, they involve active pursuit of the destroyed. 
Yes. Yep. And Israel will have to flee the most serious of all, or severe of all persecutions. 70 AD, was this like an example? The Holocaust of World War II is like an example. And in fact, more than 6 million Jews will probably perish during the seven-year period of time. Zechariah, what is it, 13, 8, may indicate that two-thirds of Israel may be destroyed during that period of time, if it is applicable to this period of time. It's not totally clear, but many Jews will die. It will be like a holocaust. So if you think the holocaust of World War II was bad, it will be more severe during the seven-year period. So that's verse 16. The abandonment of home... Verse 17, the abandonment of possessions. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things. Now, in Israel in the first century, it was very common for people to have like an upper room. They might even call it an upper room. And what it would be is just a place on the roof, basically, where in the Middle East on a hot day, In the evenings, you might go up there and relax until the rest of the house might cool down. You might have a meal up there. You might have fellowship up there. uh, But people would uh, go up kind of like an upper room. That was not uncommon. In fact, it was very common. And there was usually an access way outside of the main, main home. So he's referring to kind of a common architectural feature of most of the homes of the first century. Uh, wherever's on the housetop. In other words, he's not tarring the roof or putting down a rubberized roof like Gendron does. He's up there perhaps relaxing. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things. In other words, don't go down pick up your valuables, your iPhone. Forget the iPhone. Forget the computer. Out that are in the house. Forget about the possessions. You're going to have to get out of town as soon as you can. And he emphasizes that in verse 18, the abandonment of livelihood. You're out in the field. Whoever is on the housetop must go down, not get things. In verse 18, whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Just leave. Don't walk, you know, quarter mile to the house to get whatever you need in terms of a long trip. So he's kind of making it close to home here. The urgency of getting out of town. Things are going to be that severe that if you don't get out, you may die. It's a life and death situation. And the persecution is going to be very extreme. And then verses 19 through 22, we won't complete this, but let's get into as much as we can. In verse 19, he's going to describe how devastating this is going to be. Now, verses 16 through 18, he's talking about this departure You need to leave in desperation. In other words, the urgency of getting out of town. And now he's going to give us kind of the reasons because it's going to be so devastating. And he's going to describe some of that beginning in verse 19. And the destructiveness is going to be especially on the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable. And those that are most vulnerable in a culture generally are women that are pregnant. They need help especially later in their term, right, Amanda? Woe to those who are pregnant. And the reason for that, hmm? 
No, she's not pregnant. <laughs> she's a nurse. <laughs> she's a nurse. <laughs> Don't want to spread any rumors. <laughs> Sorry about that, Amanda. <laughs> I was thinking of her skills, you guys. All right. Okay, woe to those who are pregnant. Not Amanda, but those who are pregnant. They are most vulnerable. They can't move as fast, right? And the idea here is the urgency of moving and maybe running out of Jerusalem until you can get well enough away that you can escape. So if you've got a baby and you're nine months pregnant, it's going to be very difficult and you probably won't make it. Woe to those who are pregnant. Woe to those who are nursing babies. In other words, now you have to care for your baby as well, not just yourself. Added burden, more difficult way of escaping. So he's kind of bringing it home here to real-life situations. And these are just examples. I summarize it by those that are most vulnerable. Those that are in a wheelchair, he could have said. In other words, those that are on crutches or those that are sick in bed. This time is going to be so damaging, so difficult, that it's going to be difficult to escape. That's verse 19. And we've had examples in history where babies, the most vulnerable, have been killed historically. Can you think of the first one in Israel's history? No, even before that. Even before the wilderness Passover, first Passover. Before Moses, yeah, when Moses was born. Remember that situation. Pharaoh in Egypt. And Moses had to be put in a little basket and run down the river. And in God's sovereignty, the Egyptian, uh, what was she, the Pharaoh's daughter, raised her. Sister, okay. So there's an example of where babies were destroyed, babies were killed. It's going to be similar in a seven-year period of time. The Babylonians, what they would do, they did several evil things, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. They would rip open pregnant women, remove their bodies, and before the woman would die, they would dash those babies on rocks. It's going to be like that during that seven-year period of time. Another occasion in the first century, anyone remember? First century? Yeah, another Pharaoh-like individual, Herod in Judea, trying to get rid of Jesus. It's going to be like that during that seven-year period of time. During the tribulation, Israel is going to suffer the same things. And we have somewhat of an allusion to what may take place in that passage that we're looking at. Verse 20. There'll be a difficulty in terms of seasons. Pray that your flight, and by the way, flight is the noun form of the verb that we looked at earlier, flee. So this is something in terms of, and we're not talking about catching a, an airplane here, we're talking about fleeing, basically. And with urgency, with speed, with determination, in other words, thinking in terms of escaping, so we pray that your flight will not be in the winter. Why? Well, you're going to be exposed to the elements. And if you have to spend a night out there, it's going to make it just more difficult for you. You're not going to have the convenience of shelter. 
So it's going to be difficult during this time. Or on a Sabbath, if you're a, a Jewish person and you want to honor God, and you know what the commandment with the Sabbath is? Uh, can't move, can't travel. So he's just emphasizing the the difficulty of this period of time. And then in verse 21, and we'll conclude with this, and I won't develop all of it, but let's look at part of it. Most destructive of all tribulations of all times. And in the passage, for then there will be a great tribulation. Now he's already described difficult times. He's already described persecution. He's already described great suffering. And he's called that simply the beginning of birth pangs. This is just the beginning. This is not the most severe. This is not the most difficult. This last three and a half year period of time is called great tribulation. And he goes on, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world. In other words, there's never been any time in history like it. Never in the past. The Holocaust after World War II does not compare to what's awaiting the world in the future. 70 A.D. And by the way, the preterists see all of this fulfilled in 70 A.D. But that, as severe as it was, does not match what the book of Revelation describes will take place in that future seven-year period of time. So, it has not occurred since the beginning of the world. Even uh, 586, when Israel was destroyed, the temple was destroyed back then, that is not anything like what will take place in the future. So, it's great. It'll be worldwide. We'll pick up here next week. You might just jot down. Revelation 3.10. Not since creation. In other words, never in history. And nor ever will. Never in the future. Read the book of Revelation. And you get the essence of what Jesus is describing here. It tells you... Uh, something of the severity of that period of time. So this is a time where we need to, understanding our time, I think we are heading in that direction. We can't pinpoint when or how long, but we need to be ready for it, and we need to be prepared to share the gospel, because we want people to escape, and if you believe in a rapture, that's the only escape, is for those that know Jesus Christ, And if the rapture is pre-tribulational, then that's people's escape. Because those that become believers during that period of time, most of them will die in that holocaust. So where are the holocaust? We mentioned that before when we talked about the greatest revival. They will be sealed at the very beginning of that seven-year period of time. No, they go through it. But they are sealed. They will survive it. But they will not escape suffering. The 144,000 will survive. But they will experience the persecution. Okay? Just close at this point, and I'll give you a closing thought. A closing thought. There is a need. If you know Jewish people, a need to reach out to those Jewish people. And there are some, even in my family, that I've been sharing with, and I will continue to share with them. If they will not respond now, seeds can be planted for the future. But you might prioritize them because we don't want them to go through this period of time.
Who's got it? Got it? Okay. Amanda, who is not pregnant, is going to pray. Amen.